This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 11. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 11 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funyhetten and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funyhetten. Good evening, Randy. Hi, Lynn. How are you today? I am well. I'm really excited tonight that we're going to have an opportunity to hear from Pernille Rip, author of Passionate Learners, How to Engage and Empower Your Students, and Empowered Schools, Empowered Students, Creating Connected and Invested Learners. Um, actually really enjoyed both these books, so excited to hear from Pernille. Pernille is a seventh grade English teacher in the Oregon, Wisconsin School District, previously serving in roles as a math resource teacher and fourth, fifth grade teacher. In 2010, Pernille created the Global Read Aloud, a global reading project that has connected more than one million students on six different continents. The Global Reading Aloud continues to be a passion of Pernille's, and she has been nominated for many awards and highlighted in the U.S. Department of Education National Education Technology Plan for 2016. Welcome to the show, Pernille. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Several episodes ago, we interviewed author Warren Berger, author of A More Beautiful Question. And in that book and in that interview, he described a beautiful question as one that is ambitious and actionable. What is the beautiful question behind your book, Passionate Learners? Well, <laughs> that, that is a very deep and hard question. Um, <laughs> to, boil, to boil it down to something, something quite simple, it is why are we losing students in school every day? Why aren't students coming to our classrooms excited and instead uh, feeling like school is something that they need to just survive through? And so that for me has been a huge question in driving me to try to change the way I educate and also how I advocate for the students that I teach. Um, because right now we're not doing 
everything right. There's there are things that are happening that are that are right, but there are a lot of things that could be changed too. So we seem to have lost the students somewhere along the line, and that's what gets me up every single morning is trying to find out where they are and how we can get them to be excited about school again. And one of those questions that you're thinking about in your book and that you write about is, would you like to be a student in your own classroom? And ironically, Randy and I were talking about um, a shadow a student for a day. <laughs> what this coming this uh, February and thinking about doing that with our administrative team. But um, thinking about that question, talk to us about the importance of a growth mindset for teachers at this time in education where we're really challenged to keep up with the changes that are happening around us. Well, I think for a long time, uh, teachers were expected to be the expert on all things. And I think we still are in, in some degree. But with that expert mindset also came the idea that we needed to have the answers for everything. The problem with that mindset is that we end up being in a, in a fixed mindset, as Carol Dweck would call it, that if we think we're the experts or we need to have all the answers, when we don't have the answers, then we end up making stuff up because we don't want to lose faith. And so I think part of having a growth mindset now is realizing that as teachers, we need to be role models for what it means to be passionately curious practitioners and also need to be role models when it comes to what we don't know. And so it's not that we shouldn't have expertise because we are still the adults and we should bring knowledge into our classrooms, but we need to go in and model what it means to be a learner. And I hate the term lifelong learner because there's no way of knowing if someone is a lifelong learner. But at the same time, we need to just go in and say, this is what it means to constantly grow and question. And part of that growth and questioning needs to be the conversation that we have with our students as far as how is this system working for you? How can I make this school day better for you? How can I make this more meaningful for you? And we can't have that conversation if we go in thinking that we're infallible or if we go in thinking that we are the ultimate expert and everything that we do is done in the correct way. And I think that's very humbling, but it goes beautifully with the idea of the growth mindset because definitely if we go with the question of would I like to be a student in my own classroom or would I like my own children in my own classroom, mm -hmm. then we have mm -hmm. to really look at, okay, what are the things that I can control and change so that the answer more often than not would be, yes, I would have a good experience in this classroom and would learn something. Mm -hmm. So if we want to come up with a truly rich answer to that question of would you like being a student in your own classroom what better source to go to for some data and information than our students so why must we reimagine our approach to student voice this idea of student voice and and what are some ways that we can implement this goal of giving our classrooms back to our students I think we need to reimagine it, and, and this is not anything new, by the way. I'm, I am not the bringer of new knowledge. I think a lot of this has been said for many years by, by many smart people, but I think the way that we need to reimagine it is we need to stop asking the easy questions because even when I was not that great of a teacher starting out, I was asking my students questions. I was surveying them, and I thought that I was uncovering enough truth to be a better teacher. The problem is that we are human, and so we don't want to be faced with things that may upset us. Mm. But that's the problem in education, that we have to have real, true, honest conversations with students where we give them an opportunity to give us their unfiltered answers and not just give us the answers that we kind of want to hear about how we're probably a good teacher. 
And so when we, when we reimagine those student conversations, the first bit is we have to have community. We also have to create a classroom where students actually trust us and know that if they give us their honest answers, it won't somehow come back and harm them in the end because we end up holding a grudge. And that is really hard, especially the older the students get or depending on their personal experience with school, you know, to build that kind of relationship where they'll say, look, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but here are the things that I need to have a better education experience. But part of that conversation needs to be, too, that we need to start going back to, you know, reclaiming student curiosity and saying, okay, what could school look like? Because right now, most of my kids at the beginning of the year, every year, no matter how amazing their teachers have been before, will say, well, this is just fine. So we need to kind of go back to, well, what can it look like? How can it be better? And figure that out with students as well. It's sort of this whole um, design thinking process, I think, too. And design thinking, yeah. one of the first principles is going going to the end user, um, asking those questions to understand their experience, and then yeah. using that information and that data to create, in this case, creating a learning environment um, that meets the needs of that end user. So, you know, this idea of, of the student voice, like you said, it, uh, People have talked about this before, but I think, you know, your book really and your thinking is really sort of bringing that to the surface, at least for us, you know, in terms of uh, the resources that we've been tapping into. Um, you've been a very strong voice in that area. Well, and I think I've been propelled to my, by my students to be a strong voice because all of a sudden I saw the difference that it made for them. And I realized that here were these kids that for years had had opinions about school but they weren't necessarily being heard and not because their teachers before me did anything wrong or were poor teachers in any way, but just because we, and by we, I truly mean we, had never stopped to ask the questions because well, we didn't know that it was important. And it's something that I think is in the DNA of education too. It's just that, right. that it's not normal for us to, <laughs> to uh, solicit or, or really listen to the student voice. And it's, you know, something that's that's coming to the surface, as I said before, and more people are starting to pay attention. Right. And when we think about, like, professional development and all the professional development we should go out and get, well, the best professional development we can get right now is sitting in our classrooms every single day. Mm. And it's free. Mm. But how many people are tapping into that? And that's mm. where that growth mindset comes in. We all have to have that as adults and teachers and educators. Yes, very much so. And you have a couple of great resources in the back of um, your Passionate Learners book and those in the appendix with the questionnaires. So you can have the conversation, but you've also provided teachers with some resources of how to get that student voice through writing, um, also get some student voice through their conference sheets for student-led conferences. So lots of great, lots of great resources there to support teachers as they have those conversations um, and also provide for that written feedback. So one of your chapters, you talk about um, the first day of school and <laughs> you share um, your recipe for an awful school year. <laughs> and I'm reading that and I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, a lot of our teachers give all the rules on the first day. Um, and a lot of our teachers, you know, we, we've heard the don't smile until, until mm -hmm. December thing also. But talk to us a little bit about um, your thoughts from moving um, away from the idea of a teacher as lawgiver to that teacher as a relationship builder? Well, I think that we spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about the very first day of school and how we need to make sure that students know how to function within our classroom rather than thinking about the community that we're trying to create. 
And I think about it the other day, I was giving a workshop on student engagement with teachers. And, and I, you know, the first thing that I said was, if you had been in a traditional classroom, you would now have been told where to sit, what the rules were for today, and you would have been asked to probably put your devices away and, and stop talking. And so I think about that first day where we have the uh, immense responsibility to start off right, we tend to fo focus a lot on the wrong things because all of that stuff will come. So I always think about what's the very first thing that students see when they come into our room? Well, in, in our classroom, it's a lot of books. And the very first thing that they're asked to do is to come on over to my rocking chair where there's a big pile of picture books, and then they get to choose which picture book we're going to listen to. That's the very first thing that happens in our classroom. And through that action, I've shown students that we're serious about reading, but we also like to have fun. Picture books are a huge part of our seventh grade cur curriculum, and they've already had a choice. I didn't teach them how to walk into the classroom and how to sit down and be quiet. They already know how to do that. And I think sometimes we forget to respect the intelligence that our students bring in on the first day of school already. I saw that you tweeted out about the picture books. I think it was probably this weekend. And um, could you just tell us a little bit more about picture books in your in your classroom, the seventh grade classroom, correct? Yes, uh, I'm obsessed with picture books and I'm not alone. <laughs> there are other fine educators out there that have been using them for years and I'm merely following on their coattails. Paul Hankins is one, Jillian Heisey is another. Um, but I, th I think for me, I've, I've always had picture books in my classroom, but they used to be behind my teacher desk saved for mentor texts. And it wasn't until a fifth grader had the audacity to ask if we could actually just read one for fun that I realized what I was not tapping into, which was that if we really want to reclaim reading as something that students enjoy, well then picture books are the perfect medium to do that. And since then I've invested a lot of money in picture books because it turns out that it's not just for reclaiming the love of reading, but picture books can be used on so many different levels, particularly now that I teach a middle school uh, at a middle school where we have 45 minutes for instruction. 10 minutes of my 45 minutes is given to students for independent reading of their own books, whatever they choose. So when I need to use a mentor text, it needs to be short and sweet. And last year I was scrambling to find text that would work within our time frame and finally looked over at my shelving of picture books and again realized, well, hang on, here are the mentor texts that I've been looking for because the picture books that are being written right now are deep and complex and can be used for so many different conversations. And so now picture books is the first place I start. And then we can go into more you know, traditional complex short stories or texts or whatever we need to. But by removing the barrier of the fear that students can have towards text, all of a sudden my students are braver when it comes to their opinions and how they analyze and how they write. It has been incredible to see the transformation that my students have had and what they can use picture books for. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I have definitely jumped fully on the bandwagon of making sure that picture <laughs> books uh, belong in the hands of any child at any age and that they can be used for so many different things. And that's why I know the post that you're referring, it truly was me feeling like a broken record because almost every single conversation I've had lately with different teachers of different things, I have said, well, have you tried a picture book and here's why? And it's been a different reason each time. Hmm, interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that your book speaks to and our conversation here is that you're a very intentional, reflective practitioner. And it's clearly the foundation uh, of your own personal transformation and has allowed you to grow professionally and to transform your practice. So from your perspective as a, as a 
teacher, um, what strategies would you suggest uh, to other educators to develop this reflective practice as an educator? I think being mindful that you need to have it and figuring out too what works for you. The, uh, the whole reason behind the blog, which led to the book, which led to me speaking to you today, was that I needed to reflect out loud, uh, that I needed to get it out of my head. And my poor husband, I'm sure, had heard many educational stories and was the one that pointed me in the direction of a blog and said, have you thought about writing about it? And I hadn't at that time. Um, I read blogs, but I certainly didn't expect to write a blog that other people would read. But for me, it became this very, uh, I don't know, freeing way of reflecting out loud because the minute you say it out loud like that, particularly when it's written publicly, you, you're held to the words that you speak. So when I sit there and I, and I think about things that I want to change, I can't just write it and then go back the next day and do what I did before. So for me, blogging and reflecting out loud like that has become a way to keep myself honest and to make sure that I'm still trying to change. So I think for anyone who wants to start reflecting more is really being mindful about finding a specific time or a specific method that works for them, whether that is having coffee with a friend or calling someone or using Boxer or writing a blog or writing a private journal, but somehow looking at what you did and go, how can this change? How can this be better? But also celebrating the successes because I think too often people reflect only when our lessons are, are terrible mm. and I certainly do that as well. But if that's all you reflect on, you're going to end up thinking you're the worst teacher ever and that will not keep you going when you have a not so great day. So make sure that you reflect on everything. What worked? What didn't? Where can you change? And then keep pushing yourself to dig deeper and go, okay, if this is what I'm realizing, what can I use this for? Because one thing is to reflect, but another thing is to use it for something to, that actually generates a change in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that sort of our, our profession is so hectic at times. There's so mm -hmm. much shallow stuff that gets thrown at us that it's, it's so easy to have it consume all of our time. And that time that's needed for that quiet reflection is oftentimes consumed or we let it go to those shallow tasks that get thrown at us. Um, and clearly blogging has been something that has been one of your avenues of reflection. And, and oftentimes we'll hear from teachers or, or other educators and educational leaders, you know, that the sort of um, hesitancy to share things publicly. Do you have any suggestions to that um, people might take uh, into consideration to sort of push them towards this idea of, of blogging and putting some things out there publicly and not being either afraid of what's going to happen or something like that. Is there anything that you could suggest to sort of push people uh, to try something like that? Well, I think choosing to blog publicly almost has to be part of your DNA in a way. I mm. think it has to be kind of hardwired into that. That's how you reflect in a way. Mm. So what I always tell people, though, that that are thinking, you know, this may be a good venue for me to get my thoughts out and to change is don't tell anyone your blog site address you know keep it private until you feel comfortable sharing it with other people because I think a lot of people assume that the minute you start blogging it's automatically public and people will read it not necessarily you control that mm -hmm. but also trusting that that gut feeling I I know uh you know if I start to feel uncomfortable with something I'm writing I'm not writing it in a in a in a good way. You know, I'm not writing it in a way that will inspire conversation or change. I'm just writing to vent it out. And that's not 
always <laughs> the best thing to publish. So I think it's, I don't know, it's trusting yourself, it's finding things to write about and finding things that are meaningful to you because I think often now, now too when people want to blog, I've heard a lot of people saying, well, you know, nobody's going to read it. That's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. Blogging is not about other people reading it. It's about you gaining something from it. So I always say, don't worry about your audience. Don't worry about what you're going to write about next. Worry about what you're going to write about now mm-hmm. and what you can get mm-hmm. out of it. Because I think that some people, and, and, and I'm probably part of that, that group of, that almost becomes a problem for people wanting to start out blogging because they see people that have been blogging for a while and they say, oh, well, I want to be like them or I wish my blog was like that. But you can't compare yourself because most of the blogs like I follow, they've been at it for a long time. And mm-hmm. so if you're just starting out, I mean, you can go back to my original blog post. I just showed it to my students last week and they were laughing at me, seventh graders, because it was terrible. It was like, I'm going to blog and here's why I'm going to blog. And I hope you read my blog. <laughs> I mean, it just, it was not good. And so I think it's, I, I don't know if in that whole long uh, answer, if there's any <laughs> hints or feedback, but I think it's finding out if it will work for you and then pushing yourself mm-hmm. a little bit and maybe dipping your toes into sharing things that are slightly uncomfortable for you, but don't go for the full bonanza of, I can't believe I shared <laughs> that because then you'll never go back to it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good points. Well, one of the areas that you've been um, reflecting on is the area of homework and you Talk about homework routines and a whole lot of paper in in your book, Passionate Learners. Um, What were some of your aha moments from homework or ways that you've shifted your thinking to support these learners in your classroom? Well, I think the biggest aha moment and, and my, was definitely the night I turned to my husband when I was teaching fourth grade and I, and I said to him, you know, I know who's going to do well on their homework before I even look at it. And he looked at me and said, well, why are they doing it then? And I was like, oh, that's a good point. If I already know which students will do well, which ones will need help, which ones will have had their parents help them, which ones will not do it, why am I having my students do all this when I can provide time for practice? in school. And so the more I started exploring it, and of course I read Alfie Cohn and I started looking at the research as Mm -hmm. far as homework, I realized Mm -hmm. that I was asking my students to come in and work very intensively in the hours that I had them in the classroom. And then I was taking more of their day because I couldn't stop talking long enough to give them work time. And I don't have the right to do that. And I know others might disagree and say, well, part of it is practice. I agree. But if we monitor our teacher talk and the things that we have students do in our classroom, we will see just how much practice they can get within their within the school day already. Now that my oldest is older and she has a fantastic teacher in our district, I've seen it even more so because I think as teachers, we don't realize how much a small assignment, how much time or effort it might take for a child. And so several years ago, I had another epiphany when I started doing the homework that I was assigning to my students. And I can tell you, it was mind-boggling and really changed me because even more so then, I mean, and these were now the projects because I wasn't really doing a lot of homework, but the projects I was assigning to students, having to realize how much time it actually took me as a, you know, 35-year-old woman compared to my seventh graders was really huge. And so... For me, homework uh, is the only thing that they have right now is they need to read every night, and uh, that's it. And I trust them. There's no reading log. There's no proof. 
Um, I can tell when they come in and they're excited about a book or they want to abandon a book or they want to share the book that they just read, whether they did their homework or not. So, yes, I've been very adamant in uh, that uh, homework robs children of their childhood and we have no right to, 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 to do it. So. so let's move from homework to classroom <laughs> behavior and how has uh, how have you shifted your thinking in terms of behavior and supporting the passionate learners? Well, I think... Um, most teachers start out with, you know, their classroom management plan already hammered out, and I was no different. I had my laminated punishment poster of what would happen, and the wonderful thing is I, I, I it was laminated. It was beautiful. I have terrible handwriting, and this thing took me hours. In fact, I think I had to make two, and I had hung it on the wall right above the sink because, of course, my fourth graders at the time would wash their hands a lot, and so I wanted it to have the most visible place in our classroom so that whenever they were washing their hands, they could be reminded of what the punishment was if they stepped out of line. And I clung to that poster and I clung to that system because I didn't know any better. And I, re and I thought that if I didn't have something like that, well, then it would be anarchy in my classroom, even though I was teaching nine-year-olds, you know, whose biggest infraction was that they wouldn't stop talking most of the time because I was talking too much. But um, I think now it is there's there are no rule posters, there are no punishment posters, and there is no set way of punishing a child because I think more often now it's I'm, it's me pulling them aside, going, "What is going on? Like, what is this?" And not because I'm trying to uh, scare them in any way, but because I'm genuinely wondering what is going on, what are you doing, and why are you doing this? And I think that's what we often forget. And I can't blame any of us because we are under so much pressure to get things done in our classrooms. And so it is a lot easier to just tell a child to get out or to go see the principal or to put their name on the board or move their clip or whichever system we have in place rather than to take two minutes and deal with whatever's going on. And so for me, it has really become, okay, I need to, to work with this child and figure out what's going on because there's always a bigger reason than what we assume. And so, again, it's realizing that we teach human beings. And I think sometimes we forget that. And now being the mother, I have four children. And they're all kind of wonderful and crazy. And I'm so thankful for the teacher that have stopped my daughter and have said, hey, what's going on? Rather than said, okay, here's your punishment. Mm -hmm. And so from a parent perspective, too, I think about if a parent were to walk into my classroom and I was in the middle of having a, a conversation with their child that involved them somehow misbehaving, how would I want to hear my child being addressed? And that is a very sobering thought. So I always kind of teach like a parent could walk in at any moment. And I think that that's very powerful. Because that keeps us in check, even if we're having a bad day where we think a kid is trying to do everything possible to upset us, that this is still someone's child that we're teaching. And that child has a human reason for acting the way they do, even if they're not still aware of why they're doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective to bring the parent lens to everything in your own many of our own experiences as parents and how would we feel, you know, that empathy and reflection. So one more area that you have developed, you know, some different practices based on some research that you've done and also your personal reflecting is the idea of, of grading and assessment. And you talk about your gradeless classroom. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you've shifted your thinking to support your passionate learners um, in the area of assessment? 
Absolutely. And that is still an ever evolving beast <laughs> because I do work in a public school system that functions on standards based grades and letter grades every quarter and then letter grades every semester. And so trying to f take this philosophy of not believing that we can put children in the boxes that numbers and grades give us and yet still complying with what I need to comply with is always interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I tend to now call it my limited <laughs> grade classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think what it boils down to is that the number should mean very little to the child. What should mean a lot is their own reflection on how they've grown and what their goals are. And I think that that's what grades remove from us because the minute we put a grade on something, it's done. It doesn't matter how much feedback we've given, how much care we've taken, with a piece, the minute we hand it back to a child and it has a number or a grade or a triangle or whatever we decide to put on it, that's all they focus on. And as my students have told me over the years as well, that's all their parents focus on. They don't then hear what the student has to say as, as far as maybe the growth they did or the struggle they had to achieve this learning outcome. So in our classroom, while we still function under the standards-based grades, we've really tried to reclaim what those numbers mean. That there's nothing ashamed with being a one or a two, meaning beginning or developing. Because that means that they still have more practice, more knowledge to, get, to gather, and how can I help support them in that? And so we have a lot more conversations about what the scores mean and where the kids are. And the kids are funny about it because they will, oh, great, we're reflecting again, Mrs. Rip. Like, didn't we just do this? I think most kids would prefer if you just gave them a score because uh -huh. they could be done with it. But mm -hmm. having to stop them and slow them down and say, wait, where are you? Mm -hmm. What do you feel? And so we have a standing rule, too, with any major project that they assess before they see anything that I've done. Because I don't want my words to skew how they feel about it. And that goes for now. Actually, on Thursday, our lesson plan is the students will define the letter grades. And then they'll assign their own letter grades to themselves and meet with me to discuss. We have to give students ownership back over letter grades. Because right now, most of my students, uh, maybe not by this, by this time in the year, but by the time they came in in the beginning of the year, they would have told me that they have no control over their grades. And that's not true. But they don't see that. Mm-hmm. That thinking really fits in with this whole idea that I know we've been tossing around of learner agency and mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, when our students leave us, they're going to be totally responsible for creating their lives uh, in a world that's going to probably be very different than it is now. And yeah. they're going to have to be able to assess and uh, determine what their success at and what they need to improve at and what they need to continue to learn at. And uh, we need to be giving them the opportunities to develop that skill in school. And your thinking is just very much in line with that. Um, so that's really good to hear. So our final question, we started off with this idea of a beautiful question behind your book. So since you've written your book and, and you know, sort of at this snapshot in time, what kind of beautiful questions are you currently thinking about in your practice? I'm actually starting to think about what about the kids that love school? <laughs> Which may sound crazy, but it's, it's kind of like, okay, what are we doing for the kids that love school and how are we challenging them mm. to, 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 to love it even more? And how can we tap into them as a resource for you know, charging ahead with the conversation and getting other children aboard. So that's been, been, you know, bongling around in my mind. And then also, um, you know, now that I'm an English teacher, a lot of it has to do with, okay, 
how can we turn our literacy instruction into something that actually matters for children and that they can see actually will matter and not just be another checklist item to get through in school. I don't know if those are big enough questions for you. There's always a trillion questions in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it just changes depending on the kids, you know, and I'll, I think also, uh, you know, student engagement, obviously something that lies heavily on my mind. And so how do we get students to become engaged so that it doesn't just all fall on the teachers? And then finally, how do we support those teachers that are out trying to make changes, um, especially if they're faced with colleagues or schools that don't understand why on earth they would try to make any of these crazy changes? And how do we give them the spirit to keep going? Mm-hmm. Well, well the- c- certainly as a reflective practitioner, uh, you've got questions always going through your head. And we appreciate you sharing them. <laughs> And some and interesting, the last one or second last one you shared relating to leadership, because in our roles as leaders, you know, we want to support teachers as they take risks and some of the risks that you're talking about, the same sorts of risks. Um, so it's great for us to think about that as leaders, too. So thank you so much for joining us, Proneal. We enjoyed talking with you about your ideas and your reflection and how it shaped um, your practices and um, changes in student choice and homework and behavior and, and certainly grading as well. To learn more about Perniel's work, you can visit Perniel's website, uh, Blogging Through the Fourth Dimension at pernielsrip.com, and we will put these in the show notes. I'll learn more about her Global Read Aloud project. Also, you can view some student blogs and even follow Perniel on Twitter, at pernielrip, and also um, on her Facebook page. Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's questions, what practices would you like to change in your classroom to empower your learners? And what next steps will you take to make that choice a reality? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we've shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tealtalkradio.org and look for season two, episode 11. We'd love for you to rate the show in iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Perniel. Thank you. Take care, Lynn. Bye-bye. Thanks, Perniel. Good night, Randy. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.